Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. So far this year, investors have had to contend with the implications of a regional banking crisis, a still hawkish Fed, and rising expectations for a near-term recession. With economic risks elevated, the challenge for debt investors is to strike the right balance between risk and return in portfolios while maintaining a focus on credit quality. These two risks, interest rate risk and credit risk, can have important implications for bond performance in an environment where the Fed may soon pivot to rate cuts, but likely in response to U.S. recession. So on today's episode, I've invited Andrew Norelli, portfolio manager for several multi-sector fixed income strategies here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, to dive into the outlook for the economy and interest rates and what all this means for striking the right balance between credit and duration in fixed income portfolios. So Andrew, welcome to Insights Now. Uh, thanks for having me, David. It's great to be here. So let's start by talking a bit about the economy. Uh, we've seen a, a pretty mixed bag when it comes to economic data so far this year, but generally it does seem like the economy is continuing to decelerate here. And particularly concerning, I think, is what we're beginning to see in the labor market with the recent rise in unemployment claims. So what are your thoughts on the balance of risk for the economy right now? I concur with what you just said. And I think the rise in unemployment claims and the let's call it a gentle trend downwards in, in non-farm payrolls actually understates the what what I perceive to be actual uh, weakness in the labor market that's weaker than what the Fed would would communicate and uh, and and those two high frequency data points would would communicate. I think their trajectory is is generally weaker. Um, we can get into if you want some of the specifics of what I'm looking at in the labor market, but I felt that way coming into March and the the regional bank frictions that occurred during that month. And I think after the regional bank frictions, certain things are are clear to me. One is that the regional banking balance system, balance sheet of the regional banking system needs to shrink and the balance sheet of the commercial banking system in general probably needs to de-risk. And because of those two things layered on top of a, a very tight monetary policy um, environment we already found ourselves in, which is getting tighter by the day as the Fed continues to hike, the trajectory for the economy is, is even, in my view, tilted more downward uh, after the almost inevitable credit contraction that's going to follow the regional bank frictions. Okay. Um, well, as I say, we, we were probably in agreement on that. Uh, I suppose on the positive side from a fixed income perspective, we have seen a fairly sustained disinflation trend so far this year. But there are some measures of inflation, particularly core services ex-housing, which still are too high for the Fed's comfort. Do you expect inflation to continue to fall for the rate of this, this year? I do. Um, and there are, as you, as you hinted at, several different lenses through which to look at inflation. And for now, even after the um, encouraging CPI report that we got for the month of March, uh, members of the FOMC, notably not Jay Powell, uh, have, have continued to emphasize what they perceive to be really uh, hot inflation conditions. And I just don't agree with that. So for example, John Williams said, core services inflation has not budged. That's a direct quote. But notice he said core services inflation, and that includes housing. And for reasons you've probably covered in your podcast before, we understand that OER and primary rent, the housing components of CPI, are very laggy. So those statistics right now, uh, which I believe, starting with the March report, have begun a durable downtrend, those, those statistics are vastly overstating the actual housing inflation that's going on in real time in the economy. So if you strip those out, 
and get to what Powell would call core services X shelter. And he really means X housing because he doesn't care about hotels, but core services X housing. If you want to take a pessimistic look at it, you could say that it is flatlining around, let's say 0.3 on average per month. And that's a series that BLS does not publish, but we can back out what the numbers are. 0.3 on average over the last several months. So call that, you know, a little over three and a half percent annualized, but wage growth has been decelerating for the better part of a year. Whether you look at the average hourly earnings on sequential, the employment cost index on sequential, which is only quarterly, we'll get another look at that at the end of the month, or even the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, which is really a year on year number. Um, wages have been trending downward and wages tend to lead core services X housing. So for example, if the wage for your barber is no longer going up, the price of the haircut is, is unlikely to, to continue rising. So we have a pretty good leading indicator for core services X housing, which is absolutely moving in the right direction. And then let's look at inflation in the following lens. So going back to something I said a moment ago, housing inflation is vastly overstated in the CPI statistics. If we take the entire CPI basket and remove only housing, which we accept is overstated, the entire rest of the basket, including volatile categories like airfare, used cars, medical care, whatever outlier a pundit would want to point out, the whole basket, X housing, is running a three-month moving average of 1.9%. So in other words, excluding the two categories which we know are flawed, inflation over the last quarter has been back to target. And that's completely at odds with the, the commentary that we hear out of the Fed. So they are likely to, to hike again. But I think the totality of what I've said indicates that the Fed's in the middle of a hawkish policy error and probably making the economic outcomes worse. Well, it's, uh, I can see this. We're not going to disagree much in this podcast, but uh, I really share your view on the, uh, the economic outlook and the inflation outlook. But putting that to one side, what do you think the Federal Reserve will do uh, at its upcoming meeting and for the rest of this year, and, and indeed going into 2024. Okay, I think they will hike uh, next Wednesday, May the 3rd. And do I think they should hike? No, but that doesn't matter. I think they will hike. And the reason they will hike is they are choosing to communicate viewing inflation through the most conservative possible lens if they view the big risk as under-tightening. And when they communicate that, they cause the market to price in a nearly 100% chance of them hiking next week. I think it's about 90% last time I looked. And so when the market is allowing them to hike and some subset of the committee has communicated they intend to hike, uh, the easiest thing for them to do is to go ahead and hike 25 and then in the statement communicate uh, some degree of pause. And what I think they'll do the rest of the year is I do think they are going to cut in September. So the final hike is in May. That leaves them uh, pausing for the June and July meeting. There is no August meeting. So then uh, start cuts in September. And the market is trying to start to price that, but not a full cut. It's priced in. It's sort of a gentle sort of one-eighth to one-half cut in the meetings in the second half of the year. But the reason I feel that way about September cuts is because I do think between now and then we're going to see a significant deterioration in uh, the, the high-frequency hard data and pay less attention to the leading indicators that we're looking at today. And so if we, I, I mean, I, th I think you're sort of hinting at the idea we might see a negative payroll read at some stage over the summer or going into the fall, and that, that, that certainly could change the perception of the economy. But let's move forward into 2024. If the economy does stumble into recession here, do you think the Federal Reserve has the tools to reinvigorate it? I absolutely do. So if we are 
concerned about credit conditions tightening in the banking system because we have one or more zombie banks that have negative net interest margins because they're funding assets at high-cost liquidity facilities because they had deposit flight. I know that's a lot of becauses there, but that is the case. Rate cuts fix that. You need a kind of a lot of rate cuts and, and rapid uh, arrival of them, but those capital erosive situations in the banking system, which is inevitably going to cause credit creations to tighten as we speak, they get made better. And to the extent we have frictions in the commercial real estate market because new construction of affordable housing or even medium to high end multifamily properties have been put on hold because funding is not available, because funding typically came from regional banks in the CMBS market, those things are improved rather significantly by looser monetary policy. I do think the Fed has the tools to fix it. And and even though I'm cautious, pessimistic on the economic outlook, and I think monetary policy is too tight currently, I don't think the Fed will have to cut all the way back to zero. And I don't think the Fed will have to restart QE in order to stem economic contraction if it occurs. I, I do think that they'll be able to do it. If, this is, if we get a recession, it's monetary policy caused, and so it can be monetary policy fixed. So that's somewhat hopeful in, in terms of their ability to fix things if uh, they do manage to push the economy off the rails. But let's back up to sort of the here and now. We have had, as, as you alluded to, a, a fair amount of regional bank turmoil. What's the risk that that further Fed hike on May 3rd causes additional deposit outflows across the financial system? And what do you think that means for financials in general? I don't know what the risk is because why should you know 5.05 percent money market yield be the tipping point where 4.8 percent wasn't but at some level there is a rate differential between deposit interest rates and money market yields uh, that will cause a waterfall of, of, of deposit outflight do i think 505 does it no however it's getting closer and if we agree that interest rate differential between money markets and deposit accounts was at least a partial cause of the deposit flight, why on earth is the Fed going to widen that differential? And so that's that's actually a key element of why I think the Fed shouldn't hike, uh, but, but they are very likely to do so, as, as we said. So um, I do think there will be incremental deposit flight. And from some troubled banks that we've heard from their management teams only in the last few days... Uh, there isn't a whole lot of room left for deposit flight so that they, with remaining assets on their balance sheet, that they can fund at the discount window or federal home loan banks or the BFTP. So more deposit flight from troubled banks would likely result in more FDIC takeovers, which is not a good look for the market or for the economy. So given all of that, what are your what are your thoughts on you know going forward for us this year on credit versus duration? I think it is a, a sequencing trade. So the environment we've discussed over the past fifteen minutes is one in which duration is your friend, and partially that's because I think that the correlation between high quality bonds and stocks has reverted back to right way negative correlation. So if the economy suffers and inflation is trending downward, then bad economic data will result in the market pricing in more cuts. And so that revives the classical correlation where duration is, a, is an asset hedge. So for example, in the portfolios I manage, uh, the duration posture and the composition of that duration is very different than it was in 2022 and in a word longer. Um, so duration is your friend. Credit, on the other hand, um, I will say that other than financials, 
and I've, I've sort of hinted at my bearishness on financials. I say other than financials, uh, credit fundamentals are are pretty good, especially in the high yield corporate bond market where leverage ratios are are generally low, better than they have been in prior recessions. You had credit cleansing in 2020 with defaults. You had uh, well timed refunding of of debt coming due when spreads were tight and rates were low during COVID. So there's a lot of there's a lot of positives on credit, but credit tends to peak and spread during the recession. So for the like 40 or 50 year life of the high yield bond market, spreads always peak in the recession. They don't stay there for long. But the the short answer is I think we're going to have better opportunities to add credit uh, if our macro view is borne out. So we're underweight credit and overweight duration if I paint with a broad brush uh, in the portfolios that I help to manage. So can we, can we try a slightly finer brush here? Uh, I mean, obviously in the in the area of credit, we've talked about some of the challenges facing uh, the banking uh, banking industry because of these increased in short-term interest rates. But do you think that there are some high-grade corporates that would be appropriate right now? Yes. So let's call it uh, industrials um, or maybe even single-A IG credit and maybe high triple-B IG credit that's not financials because it's perfectly reasonable to assume that if we do get an economic downturn, treasury yields will decline by more than the spreads widen. So in other words, you're getting a carry pickup in higher quality IG credit compared to treasuries. And even in a recession, the all-in yields actually decline and bond prices stay the same or go up. So you may underperform treasuries where the, where the actual optimal thing to do would be to buy all treasuries, let treasury yields decline, then rotate into IG credit that is a harder needle to thread. So I think that uh, investors can feel comfortable that the bond price is unlikely to get a whole lot cheaper in uh, high quality fixed income, kind of no matter what happens in the, the, the recession outlook. The thing that would kill it is a surprising rise in inflation. Um, but that's not my view. And I, you know, we can, if, if we have time, we can talk through the reasons. But based on the more high probability economic outcomes, I think that investors will do considerably better in high quality fixed income, maybe than equities. I think, uh, I, you know, I think you and I uh, we agree on the the, the the inflation outlook. We both I think think that a, a strong revival in inflation is unlikely here. But I have to, you know, end on a slightly ominous question that I'm getting asked more and more in the last few days, which has to do with the debt ceiling. Uh, is there a greater risk this time around that we actually, you know, uh, reach the X date and uh, go, you know, and and uh, have some default-like event? Um, and what would the shorter, long-term consequences be for the bond market if we defaulted on our debt? I was kind of hoping you were going to ask me about that, but um, if you asked me a week ago, I or two weeks ago, I would have said we're very unlikely to cross the X date. And if we do cross the X date, then Yellen will put in place this break glass in case of emergency of prioritizing debt payments over all other federal expenditures, including um, salaries of Congress members, and to avoid a technical fault on debt. I still think that's the most likely case. However, a few things have happened. The Republicans are trying to, and I think failing, to get a bill through that would codify prioritization of debt payments as explicitly legal, because it's not clear that it is explicitly legal. It's not clear it's illegal either. It does seem like a rational thing for the Treasury to try to do. Defaulting on bonds would be considered an actual credit event, whereas defaulting on payments to suppliers or defense contractors uh, probably wouldn't. 
in a traditional bond that wouldn't, but the documents governing treasuries don't contemplate things like cross defaults or, or, or acceleration because that's just not a thing that happens in, in undefaultable government bonds. So it would be legal limbo. I still think even though the administration has said a default on any federal obligation is a default, not just bonds. So therefore, we're not considering prioritizing debt payments. I think behind the scenes, they probably are because it's the most rational thing to do. I think the probability that we surpass the X date is greater than it was a couple of weeks ago, just just reading the rhetoric. And the further we get from Silicon Valley Bank and the the crisis that that caused for a period of time uh, with depositors and SVB didn't know what they were whether they would get their money back. The greater the time after that period of chaos, the lower the calls to Congress members begging them to stop creating crises. And the debt, it, if we defaulted it, would be a crisis. One quick comment, and then I'll talk about briefly the long-term implications. There is this idea that the 14th Amendment to the United States prohibits a default. So the, the words are, the validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. The short sentence. And in the past, presidents have used that 14th Amendment as a reason to go ahead and just pay the debt, or either through prioritization or an, even running an overdraft at the Treasury General account with the Fed. Um, that would get questioned as well. So there, there, there are avenues, I think the most likely of which is debt prioritization. But the long-term implications for risk assets would be uh, significant because what, whether it's correct or not, uh, the market would, would, would once again question the reserve currency status of the dollar. And the reserve currency status of the dollar enables essentially foreign debt financed uh, prosperity, incrementally at least in the United States, which is baked into the earnings power of our public companies. It would be a pretty tough risk-off period. What happens to treasury yields is less clear. An academic would tell you, well, treasuries are going to go down in price, yields higher because the U.S. defaulted and therefore we should run more term premium. However, any, any default that does occur is going to get cured, maybe cured with extra interest. And that market would recognize that instantly. And treasury does have, treasury securities do have a big uh, flight to quality and would retain much of it in a big risk off. So gun to my head, I think treasury yields actually go lower in a debt ceiling debacle, passing the X date, threatening default. What's the probability? I'll give it 45%, a little less than 50-50, getting to the X date without a resolution. And that's up from 15% two weeks ago. Uh, that is a that's a scary thought. Well, let, let let us hope it doesn't come to that. Uh, obviously, it would be an extraordinary um, own goal for us to default on our debt. So let's hope it doesn't come to that. But uh, Andrew, thank you uh, again for your. Uh, I know you've been with us before in this podcast, and it's always illuminating to hear your thoughts on the outlook. So thank you very much for participating today, and thank you all for listening. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, David. Please tune in to our next episode, where I'll be joined by Fixed Income Portfolio Manager Rick Taramina for a conversation on the outlook for municipal bonds. Until then, I invite you to read or listen to my Notes in the Week Ahead podcast, where every Monday I share commentary on the latest in the markets and the economy to help you stay informed for the week ahead. For even more timely insights, you can also follow and subscribe to my content on LinkedIn. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing.
The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.